Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, Patience here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that throughout this episode, there are a couple of distortions. We were having some issues with bandwidth, but we hope that you still enjoy the interview. Thank you always, always for listening. Trailblazer, change agent. These are just some of the words that have been used to describe our guest today, Anime Paul, leader of the Green Party of Canada, elected among the best showing for a Green Convention in Canadian history, making her the first Black and Jewish person elected to lead a serious federal party in Canada. Before being elected leader, she was the party's foreign affairs critic, and pre-politics, a large part of her career was focused on international affairs, working as a director for a leading conflict prevention NGO in Brussels, as an advisor at the International Criminal Court in The Hague, and as a political officer in Canada's mission to the EU. She has served on the boards of and has advised numerous NGOs like the Climate Infrastructure Partnership, CLIP, Higher Education Alliance for Refugees, and the Institute for Integrated Transitions. A longtime champion of BIPOC and women's issues. At home, she founded and directed the Canadian Centre for Political Leadership, or CCPL, a nonpartisan organization that trained women and underrepresented minorities to run for office, some of whom are serving in elected roles today. She holds a prestigious Master's of Public Affairs from Princeton, a Bachelor of Laws from the University of Ottawa, and is called to the Ontario Bar. She has also been recognized as an inaugural Action Canada Fellow, an Echoing Green Fellow, and as a recipient of the Harry Jerome Award, and many more. A Caribbean native of Nevis, she's been married 24 years with two children that she ultimately refers to as your children or my children, depending on her mood. Her words, not mine. <laughs> and we are so honored to have her join the trip today. Anime leader Paul, it's so good to have you with us. How are you? How's your partner? How's your mom? How's your sister? How are the youths? How are you? <laughs> Well, actually, I just realized I have to update the bio because it's going to be uh, 25 years uh, for me and my partner. We met in law school. Um, yes, yes. Very, very soon. I guess in about a, a month. And um, yeah, the kids have kids have grown even since then. And I, I am so sorry, but I must correct you. It is Nevis. <laughs> my mom would never forgive me if I left that uh, if I left that just hanging out there. <laughs> Truth be told, I said it and I said, I know I said that wrong. So I hope she corrects me. There we go. Yeah, I, there was no, I had no choice in the matter. My mom, my mom's uh, spirit is always hanging over me in the background, you know, poking me, that. saying, make sure you fix that. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yes, no, time marches on. Absolutely. The, the, uh, I think since that bio was written, the kids are a year older, mm-hmm. uh, 17 and almost 21 now. My, my older son, uh, he has his birthday on Canada Day. And, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, but yes, you know, we're, we're good and, uh, on this adventure together, all of us, uh, and that has been really nice. 
Wonderful. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, it's been an eventful few weeks for you. So why don't we jump right in? So, Anime, for our listeners who have never considered voting green or those who should take a second look, how would you define the Green Party of Canada using less than five words? Daring, innovative, collaborative, welcoming, hmm. futuristic. Ah. <laughs> I like that last part, especially. Futuristic, yeah. <laughs> If we pivot a little bit, looking at specific demographics, Black voters have historically stayed away from the Greens, which may be due to misconceptions about the party. So what do you think the biggest misconception about the Green Party is among Black and racialized communities? And what are you and your team doing about those misconceptions? Probably one of the biggest is that there are no Black people in the party. Right. Uh, and, you know, hopefully <laughs> me being here um, puts that one to rest. I think that that's a big one. And certainly uh, the there's been a perception historically that uh, the party is either a one-issue party to the exclusion of issues that matter tremendously to the Black community. Uh, and uh, sometimes dovetailing into that, the environmental and climate movement in general has been viewed as being quite, um, quite elitist, uh, quite white, uh, and so those are things that definitely have um, impacted the view of the of the uh, Green Party in the Black community. But let's also say, you know, let's also, you know, you know, recognize some of the other things. I mean, you mentioned that I'm um, um, my parents are from the Caribbean. I was born here. But my parents are from the Caribbean. That's the case with a lot of the Black diaspora. And, you know, we we, we like other uh, immigrant communities, you know, we tend to, you know, that expression dance with them that brung us. You know, and uh, that for a lot of us, that that has been historically uh, the Liberal Party. Uh, and, you know, you grow up, you see your parents voting a certain way, you vote a certain way. Um, I think that there's more consciousness now where we're younger people. Those of us who were born here, we're starting to think more about where can we put our vote where it's going to count the most mm -hmm. uh, and where people are going to be most responsive to the issues that matter to us. Uh, so I think that that is something that is helping uh, the Black community take a second look. And certainly electing me the leader was clearly an open invitation for the Black community to take a second look for the reasons that I did when I was looking for a party to join. I love when you said uh, we stick with those that that, that brung us because that's yeah. definitely, <laughs> oh my gosh, so many of us are just, you know, I, I'm, I don't know if I should name the party that brung us, but you know, like people <laughs> well, have, she already did people. Yeah. Well, people I did, have never, I, I did, they, you know, they've yeah. been, they're the party that has been in power the longest uh, since, uh, since confederation. Yeah. And yes, I mean, how many of us grew up with uh, either a photo um, or an anecdote about um, about um, Prime Minister Trudeau oh, Sr. Yeah. Yeah. In, in our house. I mean, that's yeah. just, you know, and, and fair enough, fair enough. You know, we came here, our parents came here with a sense of adventure, um, with a, a, a sense of also gratitude for the opportunity, and that's, that is absolutely fair enough. Um, but I absolutely think that our vote is one of the most precious things that we have. And if you're going to give it to someone, anyone, uh, you really should think about uh, what what they stand for. You know what they have to offer, not just to you, but also to the whole community. Yeah. What is the return on that investment? <laughs> right. Well, speaking uh, more about parties and and their stances, um, 
We recently saw the federal liberal government deliver a massive budget that, if followed through upon, will deliver massive investments to women, indigenous groups, businesses, and not-for-profits, among other demographics. Perhaps most important to many of our listeners was the $1 billion in investments set aside for the Black community alone. So since we here at The Drip are fair and balanced, and since the Green Party bases itself on being a third-way or cooperation party, what did you like about the budget? And what would a Paul government do differently specifically for the aforementioned groups? You're absolutely right. It's so important uh, now more than ever to recognize uh, the the common ground uh, and to applaud things that are done that can that can um, or will make a difference. Absolutely, you know. I mean, I definitely didn't enter into this just to become another voice of opposition. You know, this mm-hmm. is really about proposition. It's about working together and collaborating as much as we can. So in terms of in terms of the budget, uh, certainly it was good to see. I mean, there was a lot of, of different pots of money uh, set aside for things that matter. Uh, you know, childcare is something that I believe every party uh, is on board with. Uh, universal childcare that's going to make a huge difference. I'm, I'm watching how it could make a difference to one woman right now during this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> uh, and certainly, in terms of in terms of the black community, uh, any additional uh, money that is set aside is uh, is very important. And uh, the community and community organizations have been uh, very underfunded for a very long time. Those of us who run organizations serving the community know how it feels that anemia of the little drip drip of money. Um, that's not a, that's, that wasn't a pun on the name of the podcast, but oh, I thought it, it was. <laughs> <laughs> it occurred to me afterward anyway. Uh, so that is encouraging. I will say, so that is what is good. You know, certainly that is good. Uh, that, that recognition, uh, what is needed, uh, though, ultimately is a really fundamental, radical, uh, dismantling of systemic, uh, racism and systemic discrimination, uh, if we continue to operate at the surface, uh, which often, unfortunately, uh, the programs do, that and not get at the root causes, then we really can't eliminate them, and that really has to be what uh, what this is about. Um, I, I, I and I don't think I'm telling you know any any tales out of a school to say that the numbers sound really big uh, until you break them down. You know, the question is how many years is that money going to go for? How many organizations? Is that money going to um, be used for um, across how many provinces and territories? And then also we have to ask ourselves, how easy is it going to be to get the money? Because I've seen those forms and they defeat even the even the strongest and most determined organizations. So, the, you know, the devil's in the details, but we're really supportive of anything that can help the community. And, and you don't want to touch on anything that you might do differently, any specific piece of legislation? It's holistic, you know, it's holistic. It's, what I would do differently is, um, is uh, you know, having recognized that uh, systemic racism exists, having recognized that the legacy of slavery, of colonialism, of racism has, has, uh, has a, an echo effect uh, that continues to impact uh, the Black community, recognizing that uh, when you look at uh, social indicators or quality of life indicators, that Black people and Indigenous peoples are almost always in a category of their own in terms of outcomes, mm-hmm. uh, that we, we 
We need to look holistically at the entire structure of all of our institutions, uh, identify where the bias is, where the discrimination is, where the supports are needed, and then, uh, and then respond. This is about a, a cross-cutting lens that everything should be filtered through as opposed to piecemeal. So that would be the fundamental difference. You know, that question should always be asked, whether it's the climate or whether it's uh, employment or whether it's education, uh, what is the impact on the black community? How can we dismantle the, you know, the legacy of of systemic discrimination um, and, and, you know, make sure that uh, we're doing what it takes. That's, that's the difference in the approach, I would say. Um, so kind of following on that line of, of working to reduce systemic discrimination, uh, you know, we're in interesting times right now, given that we're living, hopefully, at the tail end of a global pandemic. Uh, and the idea of UBI or universal basic income has, you know, been floated around and, and has gained more popularity uh, with, with voters, including some conservatives who argue that the high cost would be offset by consolidating provincial programs. Uh, but still some academics are split on the issue. A 529-page report authored by researchers at UBC, Simon Fraser University, and the University of Calgary concluded that after three years of research that a basic income for all isn't the best for addressing poverty. Instead, these researchers say that governments should boost existing social programs through improved disability assistance, dental care, rent supports, arguing that a more targeted approach, as opposed to UBI, which perhaps is the more holistic approach, would do more to lift people out of poverty. I assume you also disagree with that statement, but but maybe you don't. What do you say in response? Uh, this is a, a subject that we're really passionate about in our party, and, and I am as, as well. Um, we hosted a, a roundtable uh, in the, you know, the wake of that report with uh, a really diverse group, a cross-partisan group. You know, we had Hugh Siegel, um, we had Senator Kim Pate, um, we had uh, Sheila Treger, you know, another um, well-known uh, UBI advocate. We had UBI Works as well, uh, all responding uh, to that report. And one of the things that they all said, and I absolutely agree with them, is that it's important for people to understand that when we talk about, we call it guaranteed livable income, but you know, it's more commonly known as, as, as UBI. Um, we are not talking about uh, the wholesale elimination of all of our other social programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not the way that it has been done anywhere in the world where UBI has either been modeled, um, tested uh, or where it's, um, <clears throat> excuse me, being integrated into, uh, into the social um, safety net. So that's really important. So of course we agree with them that uh, UBI should not and was never intended to be something to replace all other social programs. But what we're saying is that we've had a lot of time to get that mixture right. You know, we have had many, many decades of, of designing our, our system of programs, you know, the patchwork that we have. And we saw at the beginning of this pandemic that it just wasn't enough. Yeah. You know, if it was going to work, if doing it this way was going to work, then it would have worked by now. Um, and we see, we saw that millions of people in Canada would have had no support had we not instituted these emergency benefit programs. Yeah. So given how many p- different kinds of situations people in Canada find themselves in, given that we're all unique in our own way, uh, we need something that is universal, something that will accommodate all of those situations 
and something that takes away the stigma associated with the way that our social programs works as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're saying that as we wind down these emergency benefits, we must recognize that they had to be there for a reason uh, and something has to replace them. And uh, universal basic income absolutely is, uh, is a part of that. In terms of what's going to work with best in Canada, let's test it out. Yeah. You know, we had a great pilot program here in Ontario. It yep. was shut down. Um, um, PEI unanimously across party lines has voted to launch their own uh, basic income pilot program. They're asking the federal government to help support that. You know, let's see what works here and how it can, it can you know, fill those holes. Um, it absolutely is part of the, uh, the solution going forward. I would honestly argue that we've had enough reports both in Canada and from around the world, but I definitely hear you on the need for due diligence in today's climate. Yeah, I was just going to say, and we should, you know, there was a great report, if you haven't had a chance to see yet, the parliamentary um, budget officer, Uh uh, he looked at the Ontario pilot and, and did his own modeling on the basis of that. And not only did he say that uh, a, um, a universal basic income would cut uh, poverty by almost 50%, uh, he also said that it was affordable and doable. Um, and so, you know, this is, again, this is, this is something that shouldn't be considered a pipe dream. It's something that really um, needs to be part of the mix going forward. I, I like your attitude about this. Um, you know, we want to make sure we bring people along. And part of that is, it is political leadership, because you're right, if, if we want to look at the comparative examples, there's a lot of information out there about how this could work and the difference that it could make. So, um, yeah, I, I love the momentum. This is something 50 senators have signed a letter. We have, as you said, conservatives, liberals, NDPers, Greens, uh, you know, across parties um, at the liberal and the NDP convention, both said that they wanted to see uh, a universal basic income, the membership. So this is something whose time has really come, and uh, I hope that uh, we see it sooner rather than later. Because again, how long are we going to live with these holes in our in our system? I don't think we need to live with them any longer. No, they need to be filled. Agreed, completely. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Shifting gears to international politics, I know by watching your news conference just ahead of the G7 summit that you were, let's say, optimistic that the Trudeau government would make us proud with its contribution to the COVAX fund, which for our listeners provides vaccines to developing countries. In the end, we contributed a total of 100 million doses through financial supports of, I think, 545 million 
uh, and by for and also by foregoing future deliveries. Uh, we also know that at current rates, developing regions like Africa, the Caribbean, and India won't be fully vaccinated until patients and I are in our 80s. We could change this trajectory as a global community by waiving patent protection rules for vaccines and committing to sharing technology like the U.S. and France are open to doing. But Canada and the other G7 countries seem to be against that. So were you happy with Canada's 100 million dose contribution? And where do you stand on waiving patent rights to spur manufacturing and get the global community vaccinated as quickly as possible? First, let me say that uh, so many of us in this country, uh, we either immigrated here ourselves or we're the children of immigrants. And so the idea that people in Canada don't care or don't worry about what happens to people in other countries uh, is, is simply false. You know, we have we have family, we have loved ones, we have friends, we have colleagues in, in other countries uh, and we care about what happens to them uh, just just because those that's the kind of people that we are. Uh, and so people in Canada, I believe, want to see Canada leading on this uh, just for that reason alone. But when you take into account that the longer uh, COVID is out there globally, uh, the, the more time it has to mutate and the more time it has to become resistant to our vaccines, uh, you understand that whether it's for ethical reasons or for reasons of, of, of you know, of, of, of practical reasons of protecting uh, people in Canada, Canada should be doing its fair share. So it was incredibly disappointing to me. And <laughs> you never know what's going to hit the headlines, but all over the world, uh, there, were, there was a quote from me and the BBC and the Washington Post and the Guardian uh, talking about how embarrassing it was for, for me personally to see Canada taking doses from COVAX. Um, we were the only G7 country to do it. We still are the only G7 country that has done that. Um, it is something that we never should have done. Uh, we should already have returned those doses. And COVAX has made it really clear that money is not enough. Uh, they asked for 190 um, million doses uh, by, by the end of the month mm -hmm. and a billion doses as soon as possible uh, because there's only so many doses you can manufacture in any given, uh, any given year and, and uh, there are only very few uh, manufacturing facilities. Right. So money is not enough. We should be answering the global call that was made to us and we have not done that. Uh, we should be putting uh, the health of our global community first by supporting patent waivers, um, as we did with HIV drugs. We have not done that. Mm. Um, and every day that we delay is a day that um, people die. Mm. And it's also a day that um, means that we're put at more, uh, more risk. Yeah. So, yes, yeah. you know, this is what we used to be known for. We used to be known for being first to step up. Uh, to lead and to be generous and to support our neighbors in, in other countries. Um, I'm very disappointed to see that we haven't shown that leadership here. And I think it's extremely short-sighted on, on our part. And I think many people would agree with you. On the climate front, in April, we saw numerous countries commit to increase targets for greenhouse gas reduction at the Biden Climate Summit. For our part, Canada committed to reducing emissions by 40 to 44 percent by 2030, with the eye to do more between now and 2030, and you weren't about that life. Blasting the Liberal plan as inadequate and saying that we should be aiming for 60%. For context for our listeners, the U.S. is planning to curb its emissions 50% below 2005 levels by 2030. 
The EU plans to cut their emissions by 55% below 1990 levels by 2030, and the UK pledges to reduce their emissions by 78% below 1990 levels by 2035, and plan to make it law this month, in fact. So, seems like you're on to something, enemy. So how would a Paul government get Canada to a 60% reduction in emissions below 1990 levels by 2030? And how would you support a just transition for those in the oil patch? And can you lay out the stakes for our listeners? Okay. If I forget any part of that, uh, let me let me know. First of all, I'm looking at, let me start with the last part first and say I'm your viewers uh, or listeners rather can't see this, but I'm looking, I'm looking at the stakes right here. Um, you know, I'm looking at this little baby. I'm thinking of my own kids and I'm thinking of the future and, and that's what's at stake. Yeah. It's just as simple as that. Um, do we want, are, are we ready to think beyond uh, the immediate and, and, and look to the future? Uh, I think, and I think, I know that people in Canada are time and time again, even during the pandemic, they've been asked, do they want uh, Canada to be ambitious on the climate? Do they believe uh, that we can be and we should be? And the answer has been yes. And everywhere, including in the oil patch, including uh, in Alberta and Saskatchewan and Newfoundland provinces that are still um, heavily um, um, dependent upon uh, resource extraction. So that is something that that really is, is a myth that I want to dispel, the idea that there are big parts of this country where people don't care, you know, where they're less concerned about the future of their kids than, than in other parts. It's just not true. Uh, what they do want to know and they deserve to know is how are they going to put food on the table for their family um, as we make uh, as we make this uh, this this change, um, and as the um, as a sister of someone who worked uh, as a roughneck in the oil patch, uh, you know, until the pandemic uh, hit, uh, I know what that. And has, he has three kids. My brother has three kids. And that's the that's the question. Where is my insurance going to come from? Where is uh, my salary going to come from? Uh, so we need to make sure that they're front of the line when uh, the jobs are created, and that is the good news. The jobs, not only are they there, but uh, based on the American example where they're further ahead than we are in this transition, uh, the jobs pay more. Uh, they are directly uh, transferable with the skills that people have so you don't have to spend years retraining. Uh, they are safer, um, you know, and half of the people that work in green sectors in the United States, uh, they have um, no more than a high school diploma. So this is just good, good, good news uh, for parts of the country where we've seen the cost of not diversifying the economies. Um, we can get uh, to a green recovery. We can absolutely bend the curve on, on uh, greenhouse gas emissions by doing things uh, that we know we need to do. So retrofitting our buildings, um, making sure that we have a coast-to-coast -coast, uh, -coast, um, um, renewable energy electricity grid, and we're almost there. Mm -hmm. uh, making sure that we put a price on carbon, we've started to do that. Making sure that we tax goods that are coming into our country from polluting countries so that we can build up our own green industries and green sectors here. And investing in renewable energies. I mean, all of these things combined together, combined with a president in the United States that is so excited about um, doing this, making this progress, means that we could be a powerhouse globally and position ourselves in the green rush, which is happening globally to be, you know, take advantage of the economic opportunities. So that's how we do it. And 
the job of whoever's leading this country is to get people excited about the opportunity, about, about where we can be together, about our place in history in this moment. Just a question to attach to that. Um, I noticed that you don't seem to at least speak about the Green New Deal, but I assume fundamentally you do support it, or am I unclear about this? Well, the Green New Deal is a concept that means many things to many people. You know, it's never been, it, it's it's something, it's a term that has grown beyond certainly whatever it, it originally meant. Um, if the Green New Deal, and, and in the last election, for instance, when I was asked about the Green New Deal as a candidate and why we didn't just call it that, I said, well, um, we would if it was as ambitious as what we are proposing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know, again, it has it has it has evolved, and it means different things to different people. But uh, certainly, what we share in common is that we, um, uh, those who use that term, and when we talk about the green recovery, we both believe that the um, most uh, effective way to get our economy going again after the pandemic is going to be through investments. Um, in sectors that help us to get to net zero as quickly as possible, that help us to get to a green economy. We believe that the jobs of the future are in this sector uh, for the reasons that I said, uh, and um, that this is the time for us to be um, to be investing in, in, in moving us in, in that direction. And we believe that climate justice has to be accompanied by social justice. There is no separating those two things at all. Uh, if we want people to be climate champions, uh, if we want them to uh, to work uh, toward this change. Uh, they can't be worried about uh, feeding their children. They can't be worried about where their job is coming from, about crushing student debt, um, about their loved ones dying in long-term care homes. Um, you know, those those things cannot exist uh, um, um, if we're trying to move toward climate justice. So we share those things in common. And you know what? I don't get hung up on the nomenclature. Mm. All I know is that we have this historic moment uh, to be legendary. We can be legends, you know, we can be there in the history books as the people who lived in the time when we said, that's enough, and we are making the change. Uh, that is what I mix, I want to be a part of, and people can call it whatever they want, as long as uh, we work on that together. It's all good with me. I hear that. Speaking of historic moments... Uh, what is the biggest opportunity for the Green Party currently, given our current political climate? I believe our biggest opportunity is it lies in the hands of, of the people. Uh, Green parties in other parts of the world have made uh, their big breakthroughs at moments of transformation and disruption. Uh, when people have just said to themselves, you know what, um, some, something's got to change. We, we can't keep electing exactly the same people um, and hoping for a different outcome. We can't keep treading down the same road and hoping we're going to end up uh, at a new destination. Um, we're ready to try something different. Um, and usually it's, it's, it's something that begins uh, incrementally and then grows. You know, everywhere the Greens have been elected, they continue to get elected and, and continue to get elected in ever uh, increasing numbers. Uh, but people have said, you know, let's try it. Um, we see that some of the things that they have been saying, they make sense. Um, in our case, things like uh, a guaranteed livable income, which we've been talking about for decades, uh, things like decriminalization of possession of drugs, 
as we have been talking about uh, for decades, uh, universal post-secondary. I mean, there, there are a number of things. Um, they say, you know what, they, they actually make some sense there. Let's see if having them in the mix in a greater number could make a difference. And so in the next election, that is really what we are proposing to Canadians, uh, which is take a look at our policies, the ones that we've been talking about for a long time, and ask yourselves, would these make a difference in your lives? And if you think that, then vote for more of us. Give us a bigger voice. Give us a bigger voice so that we can do that work for you. Uh, and give us the chance also to bring a new culture to politics, uh, one that really is more collaborative, more cooperative, where you can say to another party, that's a great idea. I'm going to support you in that. Um, it sounds it sounds so radical these days to say that, but it shouldn't be. And that's what we offer. The last question is, um, what message do you have for our listeners ahead of the coming federal election where you're looking to unseat Marcy Ian in Toronto Centre? So your what, what message do you have for our listeners? Well, first, I would say that I'm, I'm not uh, so much looking to unseat anyone as I am looking to represent uh, the people of Toronto Centre. Uh, I feel very, very close to this community. You know, those who follow the story know that it's where I was born. It's where my mom started her teaching career. It's where my grandma, you know, worked in, uh, in the hospitals. Um, the story of the people of Toronto Centre is really the story of, of my family. Uh, and being, being in the community and seeing again how much everyone is doing, not only for themselves, but for the people around them, how civic-minded uh, the community is, I really think that they deserve someone who is going to wake up and put them first, and that also has the, the ability to do that. Um, our party, even if you're the leader, your focus first and foremost are on your constituents, the people that elected you, the people that, um, that you're supposed to be representing. And so that is what I offer. Uh, and we have a wonderful group of, of local Greens uh, also that are already out there right now working in the community. I mean, working, right? Not just canvassing and dropping up literature, but actually helping people um, find food because there are a lot of people struggling with food security, helping people who uh, were at risk of eviction, helping people who needed to be rehoused uh, for safety reasons. I mean, those are the things that uh, I'm not afraid um, to do, that I want to do. And I think that um, being who I am and, and knowing what I do about the needs of that community, I could make a very strong representative for them. So I respect whatever choice they make. And this really isn't a, you know, anti anyone a thing. I just think that of the choices that they have at this moment, um, that I'm the best one they have. And I, I can't, I shouldn't be afraid to say that either. Well, Anami, we really, really hope that we've given you your flowers today, as well as a solid opportunity to connect with more potential green voters leading up to the next federal election. You have our support ahead of your governing council vote on July 20th, and we wish you well in your own by-election and hope that one way or another, we'll see you take your seat in the House of Commons. And like we tell all of our political guests, we sincerely hope you'll join us again soon because we'd like to keep an open line of communication between our political leaders and our growing community of listeners. So chat soon. I enjoyed this so much and I absolutely, absolutely hope that you will invite me back. It is, you know, it is just always great to be able to take a moment to reflect. And so uh, this was a great opportunity for me. Uh, thank you for all that you do. This is also 
an important uh, form of leadership in and of itself. Uh, and I'm grateful for that too. So I, I can't wait to tune in uh, to your podcast uh, going forward and, you know, invite me back anytime. Awesome. Thanks, Anime. We look forward to it. Hey, everyone. Heads up. Patience and I will be taking a summer hiatus to coincide with the House and legislature rising for the summer to give ourselves a mental health break and to do some system building. But don't worry. We will be back to our weekly releases in the fall, and throughout the summer, we'll be releasing surprise interviews you won't want to miss. Thank you for the love and support you've shown us since inception, and we'll see you all in a few weeks.